Part two, chapter number four of the Man of Property. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Eva Harnick. The Foresight Saga. The Man of Property by John Galsworthy. Part two, chapter four. James goes to see for himself. Those ignorant of foresight change would not perhaps foresee all the stir made by Irene's visit to the house. After Swithin had related at Timothy's the full story of his memorable drive, the same with the least suspicion of curiosity, the merest touch of malice, and a real desire to do good was passed on to June. And what a dreadful thing to say, my dear, ended Aunt Julie, that about not going home. What did she mean? It was a strange recital for the girl. She heard it flushing painfully and suddenly with a curt handshake took her departure. Almost rude, Mrs. Small said to Aunt Hester when June was gone. The proper construction was put on her reception of the news. She was upset. Something was, therefore, very wrong. Odd. She and Irene had been such friends. It all tallied too well with whispers and hints that had been going about for some time past. Recollections of Euphemia's account of the visit to the theatre, Mr. Bosini always at Soames's. Oh, indeed. Yes, of course. He would be about the house. Nothing open. Only upon the greatest, the most important provocation was it necessary to say anything open. On Forsyth's change. This machine was too nicely adjusted. A hint, the merest trifling expression of regret or doubt sufficed to set the family soul so sympathetic, vibrating. No one desired that harm should come of these vibrations. Far from it. They were set in motion with the best intentions, with the feeling that each member of the family had a stake in the family soul and much kindness lay at the bottom of the gossip. It would frequently result in visits of condolence being made in accordance with the customs of society, thereby conferring a real benefit upon the sufferers and affording consolation to the sound who felt pleasantly that someone at all events was suffering from that from which they themselves were not suffering. In fact, it was simply a desire to keep things well aired, the desire which animates the public press, that brought James, for instance, into communication with Mrs. Septimus, Mrs. Septimus with the little Nicholases, the little Nicholases with who knows whom, and so on. 
that great class to which they had risen and now belonged demanded a certain candor a still more certain reticence this combination guaranteed their membership many of the younger foresights felt very naturally and would openly declare that they did not want their affairs pried into but so powerful was the invisible magnetic current of family gossip that for the life of them they could not help knowing all about everything it was felt to be hopeless one of them young roger had made a heroic attempt to free the rising generation by speaking of timothy as an old cat the effort had justly recoiled upon himself the words coming round in the most delicate way to aunt julie's ears were repeated by her in a shocked voice to mrs roger whence they returned again to young roger and after all it was only the wrongdoers who suffered as for instance george when he lost all that money playing billiards or young roger himself when he was so dreadfully near to marrying the girl to whom it was whispered he was already married by the laws of nature or again irene who was thought rather than said to be in danger all this was not only pleasant but salutary and it made so many hours go lightly at timothy's in the bayswater road so many hours that must otherwise have been sterile and heavy to those three who lived there and timothy's was but one of the hundreds of such homes in this city of london the homes of neutral persons of the secure classes who are out of the battle themselves and must find their reason for existing in the battles of others but for the sweetness of family gossip it must indeed have been lonely there rumours and tales reports surmises were they not the children of the house as dear and precious as the prattling babes the brother and sisters had missed in their own journey to talk about them was as near as they could get to the possession of all those children and grandchildren after whom their soft hearts yearned for though it is doubtful whether timothy's heart yearned it is indubitable that at the arrival of each fresh foresight child he was quite upset useless for young roger to say old cat for euphemia to hold up her hands and cry oh those three and break into her silent laugh with the squeak at the end useless and not too kind the situation which at this stage might seem and especially to foresight eyes strange not to say impossible was in view of certain facts not so strange after all some things had been lost sight of and first in the security bred of many harmless marriages 
it had been forgotten that love is no hothouse flower but a wild plant born of a wet night born of an hour of sunshine sprung from wild seed blown along the road by a wild wind a wild plant that when it blooms by chance within the hedge of our gardens we call a flower and when it blooms outside we call a weed but flower or weed whose scent and color are always wild and further the facts and figures of their own lives being against the perception of this truth it was not generally recognized by foresights that where this wild plant springs men and women are but moths around the pale flame-like blossom it was long since young julian's escapade there was danger of a tradition again arising that people in their position never crossed the hedge to pluck that flower that one could reckon on having love like measles once in due season and getting over it comfortably for all time as with measles on a soothing mixture of butter and honey in the arms of wedlock of all those whom this strange rumour about bosony and mrs soames reached james was the most affected he had long forgotten how he had hovered lanky and pale in side whiskers of chestnut hue round emily in the days of his own courtship he had long forgotten the small house in the purlieus of mayfair where he had spent the early days of his married life or rather he had long forgotten the early days not the small house a foresight never forgot a house he had afterwards sold it at a clear profit of four hundred pounds he had long forgotten those days with their hopes and fears and doubts about the prudence of the match for emily though pretty had nothing and he himself at that time was making a bare thousand a year and that strange irresistible attraction which had drawn him on till he felt he must die if he could not marry the girl with the fair hair looped so neatly back the fair arms emerging from a skin-tight bodice the fair form decorously shielded by a cage of really stupendous circumference james had passed through the fire but he had passed also through the river of years which washes out the fire he had experienced the saddest experience of all forgetfulness of what it was like to be in love forgotten forgotten so long that he had forgotten even that he had forgotten and now this rumor had come upon him this rumor about his son's wife very vague a shadow dodging among the palpable straightforward appearances of things unreal unintelligible as a ghost 
but carrying with it, like a ghost, inexplicable terror. He tried to bring it home to his mind, but it was no more use than trying to apply to himself one of those tragedies he read of daily in his evening paper. He simply could not. There could be nothing in it. It was all their nonsense. She did not get on with Soames as well as she might, but she was a good little thing. A good little thing. Like the not inconsiderable majority of men, James relished a nice little bit of scandal and would say, in a matter-of-fact tone, licking his lips, Yes, yes, she and young Dyson, they tell me they are living at Monte Carlo. But the significance of an affair of this sort, of its past, its present, or its future, had never struck him. What it meant, what torture and raptures had gone to its construction, what slow, overmastering fate had lurked within the facts, very naked, sometimes sordid, but generally spicy, presented to his gaze. He was not in the habit of blaming, praising, drawing deductions, or generalizing at all about such things. He simply listened rather greedily and repeated what he was told, finding considerable benefit from the practice as from the consumption of a sherry and bitters before a meal. Now, however, that such a thing, or rather the rumour, the breath of it, had come near him personally, he felt as in a fog which filled his mouth full of a bad, thick flavour and made it difficult to draw breath. A scandal, a possible scandal. To repeat this word to himself thus, was the only way in which he could focus or make it thinkable. He had forgotten the sensations necessary for understanding the progress, fate or meaning of any such business. He simply could no longer grasp the possibilities of people running any risk for the sake of passion. Amongst all those persons of his acquaintance who went into the city day after day and did their business there, whatever it was, and in their leisure moments bought shares and houses and ate dinners and played games, as he was told, it would have seemed to him ridiculous to suppose that there were any who would run risks for the sake of anything so recondite, so figurative as passion. Passion! He seemed indeed to have heard of it, and rules such as a young man and a young woman ought never to be trusted together were fixed in his mind as the parallels of latitude are fixed on a map for all foresights when it comes to bedrock matters of fact have quite a fine taste in realism. But as to anything else, well, he could only appreciate it all through the catchword scandal. Ah, but there was no truth in it. Could not be. He was not afraid. She was really a good little thing. But there it was when you got a thing like that into your mind. 
and James was of a nervous temperament. One of those men whom things will not leave alone, who suffer tortures from anticipation and indecision, for fear of letting something slip that he might otherwise secure, he was physically unable to make up his mind until absolutely certain that by not making it up he would suffer loss. In life, however, there were many occasions when the business of making up his mind did not even rest with himself, and this was one of them. What could he do? Talk it over with Soames? That would only make matters worse. And after all, there was nothing in it he felt sure. It was all that house. He had mistrusted the idea from the first. What did Soames want to go into the country for? And if he must go spending a lot of money building himself a house, why not have a first-rate man, instead of this young Bosony, whom nobody knew anything about? He had told them how it would be, and he had heard that the house was costing Soames a pretty penny beyond what he had reckoned on spending. This fact, more than any other, brought home to James the real danger of the situation. It was always like this with these artistic chaps. A sensible man should have nothing to say to them. He had warned Irene too, and see what had come of it. And it suddenly sprung into James's mind that he ought to go and see for himself. In the midst of that fog of uneasiness in which his mind was enveloped, the notion that he could go and look at the house afforded him inexplicable satisfaction. It may have been simply the decision to do something, more possibly the fact that he was going to look at a house that gave him relief. He felt that in staring at an edifice of bricks and mortar of wood and stone built by the suspected man himself, he would be looking into the heart of that rumour about Irene. Without saying a word, therefore, to anyone, he took a hansom to the station and proceeded by train to Robin Hill. Thence, there being no flies in accordance with the custom of the neighbourhood, he found himself obliged to walk. He started slowly up the hill, his angular knees and high shoulders bent complainingly, his eyes fixed on his feet, yet neat for all that in his high hat and his frock coat, on which was the speckless gloss imparted by perfect superintendence. Emily saw to that. That is, she didn't, of course, see to it. People of good position not seeing to each other's buttons. And Emily was of good position. But she saw that the butler saw to it. He had to ask his way three times. On each occasion he repeated the directions given him, got the man to repeat them, then repeated them a second time, for he was naturally of a talkative disposition, and one could not be too careful in a new neighbourhood. He kept assuring them that it was a new house he was looking for. 
It was only, however, when he was shown the roof through the trees that he could feel really satisfied that he had not been directed entirely wrong. A heavy sky seemed to cover the world with grey whiteness of a whitewashed ceiling. There was no freshness or fragrance in the air. On such a day even British workmen scarcely cared to do more than they were obliged, and moved about their business without the drone of talk which whiles away the pangs of labour. Through spaces of the unfinished house shirt-sleeved figures worked slowly, and sounds arose, spasmodic knockings, the scraping of metal, the sawing of wood, with the rumble of wheelbarrows along boards. Now and again the foreman's dog, tethered by a string to an oaken beam, whimpered feebly with a sound like the singing of a cattle. The fresh-fitted window panes, daubed each with a white patch in the centre, stared out at James like the eyes of a blind dog. And the building chorus went on, strident and merciless, under the grey-white sky. But the thrushes, hunting amongst the fresh-turned earth for worms, were silent quite. James picked his way among the heaps of gravel, the drivers being laid, till he came opposite the porch. Here he stopped and raised his eyes. There was but little to see from this point of view, and that little he took in at once. But he stayed in this position many minutes, and who shall know of what he thought? His china-blue eyes under white eyebrows that jutted out in little horns never stirred. The long upper lip of his wide mouth between the fine white whiskers twitched once or twice. It was easy to see from that anxious, rapt expression when Soames derived the handicapped look which sometimes came upon his face. James might have been saying to himself, I don't know, life is a tough job. In this position, Bosini surprised him. James brought his eyes down from whatever bird's nest they had been looking for in the sky to Bosini's face, on which was a kind of humorous scorn. How do you do, Mr. Forsyth? Come down to see for yourself? It was exactly what James, as we know, had come for, and he was made correspondingly uneasy. He held out his hand, however, saying, How are you? without looking at Bosini. The latter made way for him with an ironical smile. James scented something suspicious in this courtesy. I should like to walk round the outside first, he said, and see what you have been doing. A flagged terrace of rounded stones, with a list of two or three inches to port, had been laid round the south-east and south-west sides of the house, and ran with a beveled edge into mould, which was in preparation for being turfed. 
Along this terrace James led the way. Now, what did this cost? he asked, when he saw the terrace extending round the corner. What should you think? inquired Bosini. How should I know? replied James, somewhat nonplussed. Two or three hundred, I dare say? The exact sum. James gave him a sharp look, but the architect appeared unconscious, and he put the answer down to mishearing. On arriving at the garden entrance, he stopped to look at the view. That ought to come down, he said, pointing to the oak tree. You think so? You think that with the tree there, you don't get enough view for your money? Again James eyed him suspiciously. This young man had a peculiar way of putting things. Well, he said, with a perplexed, nervous emphasis, I don't see what you want with a tree. It shall come down tomorrow, said Bosini. James was alarmed. Oh, he said, don't go saying I said it was to come down. I know nothing about it. No? James went on in a fluster. Why, what should I know about it? It is nothing to do with me. You do it on your own responsibility. You will allow me to mention your name. James grew more and more alarmed. I don't know what you want mentioning my name for, he muttered. You should better leave the tree alone. It is not your tree. He took out a silk handkerchief and wiped his brow. They entered the house. Like Swithin, James was impressed by the inner courtyard. You must have spent a deuce of a lot of money here, he said after staring at the columns and gallery for some time. Now, what did it cost to put up those columns? I can't tell you offhand, thoughtfully answered Bosini, but I know it was a deuce of a lot. I should think so, said James. I should. He caught the architect's eye and broke off. And now, whenever he came to anything of which he desired to know the cost, he stifled that curiosity. Bosini appeared determined that he should see everything, and had not James been of too noticing a nature, he would certainly have found himself going round the house a second time. He seemed so anxious to be asked questions too, that James felt he must be on his guard. He began to suffer from his exertions, for though wiry enough for a man of his long build, he was seventy-five years old. He grew discouraged. He seemed no nearer to anything, had not obtained from his inspection any of the knowledge he had vaguely hoped for. He had merely increased his dislike and mistrust of this young man who had tired him out with his politeness and in whose manner he now certainly detected mockery. The fellow was sharper than he had thought and better looking than he had hoped. He had a, a don't-care appearance that James, to whom risk was the most intolerable thing in life, did not appreciate. 
a peculiar smile too, coming when least expected, and very queer eyes. He reminded James, as he said afterwards, of a hungry cat. This was as near as he could get in conversation with Emily to a description of the peculiar exasperation, velvetiness and mockery of which Bosini's manner had been composed. At last, having seen all that was to be seen, he came out again at the door where he had gone in, and now, feeling that he was wasting time and strength and money, all for nothing, he took the courage of a foresight in both hands, and looking sharply at Bosini, said, I dare say you see a good deal of my daughter-in-law now. What does she think of the house? But she hasn't seen it, I suppose. This he said, knowing all about Irene's visit, not of course that there was anything in the visit, except that extraordinary remark she had made about not caring to get home, and the story of how June had taken the news. He had determined, by this way of putting the question, to give Bosini a chance, as he said to himself. The latter was long in answering, but kept his eyes with uncomfortable steadiness on James. She has seen the house, but I can't tell you what she thinks of it. Nervous and baffled, James was constitutionally prevented from letting the matter drop. Oh, he said, she has seen it. Soames brought her down, I suppose. Bosini smilingly replied, Oh, no. What, did she come down alone? Oh, no. Then who brought her? I really don't know whether I ought to tell you who brought her. To James, who knew that it was Swithin, this answer appeared incomprehensible. Why, he stammered, you know that, uh... but he stopped suddenly perceiving his danger. Well, he said, if you don't want to tell me, I suppose you won't. Nobody tells me anything. Somewhat to his surprise, Bosini asked him a question. By the by, he said, could you tell me if there are likely to be any more of you coming down? I should like to be on the spot. Any more? said James, bewildered. Who should there be more? I don't know of any more. Goodbye. Looking at the ground, he held out his hand, crossed the palm of it with Bosinis, and taking his umbrella just above the silk, walked away along the terrace. Before he turned the corner, he glanced back and saw Bosini following him slowly, slinking along the wall, as he put it to himself, like a great cat. He paid no attention when the young fellow raised his hat. Outside the drive and out of sight, he slackened his pace still more, very slowly, more bent than when he came, lean, Hungry and disheartened, he made his way back to the station. The buccaneer, watching him go so sadly home, 
felt sorry, perhaps, for his behaviour to the old man. End of Part 2, Chapter 4 James Goes to See for Himself Recording by Eva Harnick